A Spantax DC-10 is flying from Spain to New York when something goes wrong on the ground. What caused this flight to overrun the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hello. Hi. We don't... Oh, we got a couple new patrons, huh? Yeah. We need to thank patrons. Yes. Thanks to Kit, who's a new patron, and then Kieran for rejoining Patreon. Thanks. Did we already thank Dallas? Yeah, we did. Okay. I think in the last episode. If we didn't, hi, Dallas. Thank you. (laughs) We're losing track. Thanks to our new patrons. Thank you so much. Happy Happy New New Year. Year. (laughs) Happy New Year. Hopefully 2022 is good. And we're, doesn't suck. we're just not. We're going to leave it at that. I don't want to <laughs> jinx it. We, Although uh, 2021 wasn't horrible, but it could have been better. Yeah, and thanks to our new patrons through 2021, it was great to have so many new of you. It's been great so far. Um, hopefully by the time this comes out, we've met more of you on the Zoom calls. Yeah. And such. It's been fantastic. Speaking of Patreon, too, if you want to hear about our day trip we took yesterday to San Francisco, one of my favorites. Go gotta gotta stick around for the post episode. Yeah, go be a patron and listen to the post episode. It was a great day. It was a good day. All right, real quick. December listener episodes probably didn't happen because we got one for the entire month. Woohoo! So we're going to piggyback into the new year and then just go ahead and tell us a story. If you've never told us a story, we have this be your first and it'll be... Yes, because it's the first month of the year. Right. So if you've never told a story, you can do that. Or you could be like David and tell us six stories. That's fine, too. <laughs> We're not excluding David, just also, to be clear. Also, just to be clear, we appreciate David. <laughs> very much. It's hilarious. Also, just say hi. Like, give us a hello and how long you've been listening. Whatever. That could be your thing. We like we like hearing from you guys. So we'll make it part first-time stories or just a story, any story at all. Greetings. It can also just be greetings. Seasons greetings. Just Seasons send us greetings. greetings. Especially if you've never, if you've been listening for a long time or even a short time or whatever and you've never said anything anywhere, just send us an email. Yeah. And you don't have to tell us your life story, but David has happened too. Yes. So. <laughs> and if you have not heard David's hey, life story. His life stories are You need crazy. to go all the way back to the first listener episode and, and listen in order. They are crazy. <laughs> He's crazy, but also he's hilarious. So yes. we appreciate it. Okay. Now that we're done with housekeeping, what are we covering today, Nick? Today's will be kind of short. Today we are covering Spantax Airlines Flight 995. That is not Spandex as much as I want no, it to be. It is not Spandex, it is Spantax. <laughs> and thank you to our patron, Brendan. This happened on September 13th of 1982, my birthday before I was born. That's. I would say happy birthday, but there's nothing happy about it. No. Okay. This was a... Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it! DC-10. Ah! <laughs> you knew, you gotta knew that was coming. Yeah. The build-up uh, gave yeah. it away. <laughs> the, uh, the notoriously dangerous DC-10. So, and, and here's the thing. The DC-10, actually, there's still quite a few flying. Not, not a lot, but there's still a handful flying. And that's pretty amazing. And most of them have been modified to be MD-10s, yes. right? Yes. Yes. So they have gotten rid of the flight engineer position, basically, and transformed the cockpit into a glass cockpit. That's really all that means. But that said, DC-10s, the reality is, as much as we talk about them being having their notoriously bad rep... It, they're actually not... They're not... Any worse bad. than, like, any other yeah, airplane. Yeah, actually, <laughs> their, their accident to uh, lifespan ratio... ratio is pretty much the same as every other airplane that's ever existed. Like, they, they, they're actually not that dangerous. The number of deaths they've had from accidents is no more than 737s and Airbuses. I think and... it was just a good chunk of time that it was yes. running. DC-10s. Well, the problem so it... is, is that when they were brand new, they killed a lot more people than most airplanes kill when they are brand new. They earned themselves quite the poor safety record. But there were so many of them produced, and they're still pretty used by cargo companies and such that they were pretty safe actually were and are were and are so the reality is they were relatively safe that said we still talk about a lot of these accidents and some of them are pretty catastrophic so this was a charter flight from madrid in spain to malaga to jfk in new york 
I didn't know DC-10s could make it across the ocean. Oh, yeah. They're wide bodies. They were intended to fly across the ocean. They were actually built as a... Basically, the idea was the 747 came out and it had four engines. Great. It could travel pretty much anywhere in the world. Fantastic. But the 707 could also do a lot of those same things. The problem is the 747 was quite large, fit a lot of people. The, the 707 was quite a bit smaller, didn't fit a lot of people. And so uh, there were some airlines that were like, okay, we want something that's a little more efficient than the 747. But, but that can fit a lot of people. Also somewhere in between the 747 and the 707. Right. A, a little more medium type of plane. And so, And so Lockheed and Douglas Corporation went to work creating these three hold airplanes, these three engines. And so the L-1011 was the initial airplane concept that came out from Lockheed. A lot of airlines wanted it. American Airlines initially put in a tentative order for a lot of them. Eastern had a lot of them, too. Eastern, yep, had a lot of them. Um, Delta put an order for a handful. A lot of airlines got really behind this thing. Then Douglas was like, cool, we're making our own, too. And they were like, well, Lockheed kind of beat you to it. But then Lockheed had a lot of delays. And then Douglas suddenly had the DC-10 ready. And so Americans shifted their entire massive order over to Douglas and bought the DC-10. We all know how that went from there. No. We've talked about it. The L-1011 was the better airplane. It was better engineered. It was a little over-engineered. It was safer. It was a little over-engineered. It still had some problems, but nowhere near what the DC-10 had. We, I mean, I think we talked about this. We, okay, we haven't talked about the MAX very much. We won't talk about it very much until Mm -hmm. the next report comes out, which was supposed to come out in November. We won't talk about it. Anyway, when the NEO came out, the same Mm -hmm. thing kind of happened with the 737 MAX. Yep. And I think... Companies just rushed it so that they could get orders in and get played sold, and then I'm not going to say too much. Happened. I'm not going to say too much, but that is also Americans' fault. Okay. <laughs> American is the whole reason the 737 Max exists. Well, good job, American Airlines. They're the whole reason that that existed. They're the whole reason that um, there was another one too. Obviously, the DC-10, but then there was another one. They just notoriously don't don't listen to them. If they want something, it's a bad thing. <laughs> No, there was something else that they used to have that was also a terrible idea. That was also a terrible idea. Should we just start naming planes? (laughs) No, it's fine. (laughs) We'll we'll figure it out another time. Doesn't really matter. Anyway, my point is, is there's a lot of similarities, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the L-1011 was coming out as a trijet, and they were like, man, this thing's going to be great. And then there was delays. Yep. And then Douglas is like, oh, but our plane is ready. Um... No. (laughs) Lockheed's, though, the problem is that once they lost that massive order, they lost profit. And they ended up, it ended up being a massive dump of debt that they went into because of the L-1011. So unfortunately, that very, very well thought out airplane that was a pretty good airplane pretty much failed Lockheed in their endeavors in the commercial industry well and you know if i was american i'm sorry we're going on a weird tangent here we haven't started the episode yet okay (laughs) but i feel like um, the smart thing to do for american would have been to split that in half so like half of that order could have been dc-10s and half of that order could have been l-10-11s yeah so then they had airplanes coming in but they were also waiting for the other ones i would agree with that that would have been smarter than and then when they had to fix the dc-10s they didn't have to take all the airplanes out. Right. <laughs> they still had the L-1011. I feel like there should have been some, like, communication, like, meeting. Yes. And someone should have been like, excuse me, why don't we just split it in half and get half the planes now and half the planes later? Okay, you also want to hear an tangent about American. Listen to the post-episode because I have something else to talk about that I already told you about yesterday. Pissed me off. Great. Remember how I <laughs> ranted about American because you read me an article headline? Anyways, all coming back to what we were going to talk about. All of this to come back to say, we're talking about a DC-10 again, and they do have safety problems. So, we've covered most of them. We've covered most of the big ones. Yes. Most of the really disastrous things that happened to the DC-10. This is a DC-1030, the larger version of the DC-10. They added an extra wheel under the main carriage, under the main, under the fuselage, Mm -hmm. just one massive right in the middle. To hold the extra weight of the extra fuel tank and the uh, higher capacity of people they could hold. This was... It had the tail number Echo Charlie Dash Delta Echo Golf. 
Like I said, this was a charter flight from Madrid to Malaga to JFK in New York. So two Spanish places, pick up people to go over to JFK. Captain for the flight. There's no names. No names for anybody. Couldn't find names anywhere. I tried. This happened in 1976? This happened in 1982. 82. Oh, okay. Yes. Happened in 1982. The captain was 55 years old. He had 16,129 hours total, of which 2,119 hours were on the DC-10. So a fair amount. Pretty good. The first officer was 33 years old. He had 6,848 hours total, of which 2,165 hours were on the DC-10. So he actually had slightly, slightly more hours on the DC-10. About 40. The flight engineer was 53 years old, and he had 19,427 hours. So he had <laughs> he had the most out of everybody on there. But he had the least on the DC-10 at 2,116 hours, by just three hours below the captain. So they were okay. all really, 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 really close in experience on the DC-10. They were all within, basically, less than 40 hours of one another on the DC-10. That's pretty crazy. I mean, so it's still more about than 2,000 hours. Yeah, they all have over 2,000 hours on the DC-10, which is pretty good. Which means this shouldn't be a crew problem, right? We'll talk about all this, but... That would be my assumption. We'll talk about But also, I feel like that's not what's going to happen. Stick Anyways. a pin in that. Okay. <laughs> Spantax was not a very large airline. They were a Spanish airline, um, primarily doing charters, vacation, and just family destinations, things like that. Um, they were never a really large airline. They oftentimes would also fill in the gaps where Iberia, Span uh, Spain's main airline. Flag uh, carrier. Yes, their flag carrier in Spain might need some extra coverage. So they would also fill in for those flights. And as a matter of fact, I there was an Iberia flight number. It was also IB995 for this because some people bought their tickets through Iberia. Hmm. Interesting. So... The aircraft began its day in Palma de Mallorca, flying to Madrid as a different flight number. It departed at 5.01 a.m. in the morning. What fun. <laughs> and arrived in Madrid a short time later. The aircraft was then turned around and 129 passengers and one baby. Yep, that was noted. 129 passengers and one baby boarded. Okay. There was also 13 crew members and four airline employees. Traveling with the aircraft, just for, I don't know, employees for the airline. Didn't specify anything about this. At 8.36 a.m., the flight departed Madrid for Malaga. For those that are wondering, yes, it is Malaga, but that is not how it's pronounced. No, there is an accent on the first A. Malaga. It's Malaga. They arrived at Malaga at 9.28 a.m. A further 251 passengers boarded at Malaga. Wow. That's a lot of people. Uh, as they prepared to head to New York, to JFK. So, they have... A total of 381 passengers and 13 crew. That's oh a lot of people. That is a massive that's amount of That's a lot of, of weight. It's a lot of weight. That is a lot of passengers. Air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff at 10.58 a.m. and 50 seconds on runway 14. The flight began its takeoff roll and everything appeared normal. Acceleration was normal and they were, and they were expecting it to be a normal takeoff. Pretty standard. But then as they accelerated, the captain noticed something strange. A very strong vibration had started and was shaking the whole aircraft. They passed V1 almost immediately after and then quickly approached and crossed VR, or rotation speed. So V1 is the no turnaround point, the no turn back. They're supposed to go fly at that point. Yep, so go, no go. Yep, VR is your rotation speed. Rotate. Where they lift Rotate. the nose. Rotate. Usually they're pretty subsequent. Yep, they are pretty... Pretty close together. They are pretty yeah. quickly one after the other. Not knowing wh what the cause of the vibration was, and it appeared to be getting worse more and more very quickly as the nose began lifting from the runway, the captain opted to abort the takeoff. Oh, no. The nose came back down hard, and the aircraft began slowing down rapidly, but not fast enough. The end of the runway quickly approached, and the aircraft rolled off the end of the runway at 110 knots. It impacted the threshold and approach lights, as well as the concrete ILS building, which sheared the number three engine from the right wing, clear from the plane, followed by a wall 60 centimeters high that held the perimeter fencing for the airport, which it went right through. The aircraft then crossed the highway, impacting two private cars and a delivery station wagon. That was a thing. 
a delivery station wagon. A delivery station wagon. I just imagine wagon. a station wagon with like FedEx all over. Uh, yes. it. I know, right? <laughs> what the heck is a delivery station? I don't wagon? know. I mean, these days it makes a little more sense because you can like Amazon in your car. So like, I guess if you had a station wagon, yeah, you but this could... is 1982. Right? I don't know. Don't 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 ask what? me. I don't know. Okay. Anyways. If you know, please tell us. <laughs> if you can draw me a FedEx station wagon, I appreciate it. <laughs> it then took out the center metal median, curbs, and hard shoulder of the highway. As it would. It then impacted a drainage ditch and a concrete farming structure. Um, it was a construction structure for some farming stuff. I don't know. They didn't really clarify. And then a cement protection barrier for a water pump, which removed about three-quarters of the right wing, and most of the right horizontal stabilizer. They also caused damage to a small building nearby and a small road. The aircraft came to a stop 1,475 feet beyond the end of the runway. Which really isn't a lot, no, given all of the stuff that it just It's hit. not, but there's so many things so close to the end of that runway, it just went right through all Maybe of them. Maybe they shouldn't. Yeah, that's why we have runway and safety areas. Emas. That too. So this, yeah, they they went not super far, but far enough that they went through a lot of things. The aircraft, when the aircraft did come to a stop, the whole fuselage was intact, but fuel was pouring from the sheared right wing. Obviously, (laughs) as would happen. Yep, and a fire began almost immediately that quickly spread toward the rear of the fuselage. Oh, God. They believe it might have started at the rear of the fuselage somewhere. Specifically, there is a break. In the fuselage above before our door, which is the rearward most right escape door. Correct. The evacuation began almost immediately as the fire spread quickly. They didn't have a whole lot of detail on how the evacuation played out, but what we do know... Oh, I do. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, do you cover a lot of that? I cover a lot, and I can cover more if I just read it from the report. No, it's fine. It's Ultimately, here's what you need to know. 333 passengers and 10 crew members managed to escape the airplane. So That's most people good. Most yeah. people got out of the airplane and survived the accident. Forty of those passengers that survived were seriously injured, but the rest had minor or no injuries. So that's pretty substantial that's pretty amount of people. miraculous considering how bad that was. Yes. Forty seven passengers and three crew member, however, perished in the accident from the fire. I will get more into that later and I can read because yes. I covered some of the sequence assuming you had it. I will read more from the report when I get to it. Fair enough. One passenger, or one person in a car was also seriously injured. One of the cars that it hit. That it hit? Yep. I hope it was the delivery station I wagon. I have no idea. Not that but, I hope anyone would get hurt, by the no, way. No. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> it was a, but that person was seriously injured, but nobody perished in any of the cars, so that was good. That is good. The fire engulfed the rest of the fuselage and the rest of the wreckage and burned all the wreckage except for the left wing. Huh. Where there was some fuel. Weird. But yeah, it did that. There's um, definitely some pictures floating around the interwebs that show pretty much the tail and the tail engine left. Yes. Also, before we even get into your part, I want to say, not even knowing anything, not even being able to to guess what happened because i have a couple of guesses but we haven't really talked about it this way before we haven't talked about this before yeah we have not sort of the same um but before we even get into that putting myself in the captain's shoes i kind of understand why he would want to not take off yes and so did investigators like it's like yeah, was it a dumb decision? No. Little, well, if you think about it, are you supposed to do it? No. But so, did he have a choice? Would the plane fly? He didn't know. So exactly. it's probably good that he didn't. So yes. in training, even to this day, they say you should not take off after V1 unless for some reason you think you will lose control of the plane. Right. And if you don't know what a vibration is, yeah. I mean, right. yeah, it's a reasonable jump. So well, if it keeps increasing as you try oh. to lift the nose. <laughs> That's even yeah. worse. We'll say this, yes. It got a lot worse when he lifted the nose, and it was very violent in the cockpit. Yeah. So, let's, let's get into it. Okay. This investigation was performed by the Civil Aviation Accident and Incident Investigation Commission, a.k.a. the Comisión de Investigación de Accidentes e Incidentes de Aviación Civil, a.k.a. the CIA IAC. Yeah, that. <laughs> that long-named thing. With the assistance of 
the NTSB. As, uh, yeah, because it's Douglas. So. Yeah, it's a yes. DC-10. Both black boxes were recovered the morning after the accident and were taken to the manufacturer for data extraction. However, it was found, unfortunately, that the magnetic tape of the CVR had been destroyed by the heat of the fire. I was going to say, it was, it was probably destroyed by the fire, huh? Yeah. That being said... The data for the FDR was able to be cleaned and extracted, and this data was sent to NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. for analysis. I don't know why one survived over the other. Maybe it was their position. Who knows? Could have been a number of things. Its recording ceased, however, after Engine 3 collided with the building. Right. I guess that would make sense. They lost power. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it still got most of the accident sequence. It probably got what caused the vibration to happen, which is kind of the point. Nope. It did it? No. Really? Really. Nope. Damn. That's unfortunate. <laughs> so that takes out a lot of things you guys might have wondered about. Engines? Nope. No, I didn't think it was an engine problem. As part of the wreckage investigation, investigators analyzed the runway for any debris that might have preceded the accident since something obviously happened on takeoff. A short time before the position the plane would have been at at V1, investigators found pieces of tire tread from the nose wheel. The tire in question was in position two of the nose gear, meaning it was on the right side of the nose gear. The remains of the tire were sent to the National Institute for Aerospace Technology, or the INTA. INTA? INTA, probably. I don't know. To determine why the tread separated from the tire. Upon analyzing the maintenance log, it was found that the tire had been retreaded for the third time on August 6th, 1982, and was installed on the accident aircraft on September 9th, four days before the accident. My mom's birthday. Yeah! <laughs> wow, that's really unfortunate. <laughs> and she was alive. <laughs> in, which it had, in which time it had only performed 14 landings. Conversely, the left tire on the same nose gear had been installed two weeks prior to the accident after being retreaded for the fourth time and had performed 46 landings. So, at this time, I don't know if this is still applicable today, but it was common to retread tires. I was going to say, why don't you just replace the tire? You can get a lot of wear out of it if you're retreading it. Yeah. I mean, they did this with truck tires still a lot. So, ground crews in Malaga and Madrid did not find any anomalies with the wheels slash tires. Unlike the 2008 Learjet crash in South Carolina, the tire pressures were checked and not found to be anomalous. I was going to say, did a tire burst or something? But I guess that's not it. Nope. That, it, that ticks off one of the things that I was assuming. However, investigators found that there was an issue with the recent retreading process. These tires are made in layers, and the layers get replaced to make a, for a longer-lasting tire. From inner to outer, it goes carcass... I don't know why it's called that, but it is. <laughs> it is. Cord weaving about five to, seven, five to seven centimeters thick, a rubber strip about five millimeters thick, more cord weaving, another layer of weaving, and then the rubber tread eight to ten millimeters thick. Investigators in the lab found that there were, quote, low adhesion flaws between the different layers, different levels of impregnation of the cord weaving, irregular attachment of the intermediate rubber strip, and bubbles in certain zones as a consequence of an improper execution of the retread process, end quote. As a result, all the layers came off of the carcass. The majority of the failure occurred between the two consecutive layers of cord weaving, about 66% of the failure surface area, and this type of failure in particular is indicative of low adhesion. So, it was done wrong. Yep. And then the tire basically shredded. Awesome. Yep. But would that cause the entire plane to vibrate? Yes, violently. They're moving almost 200 miles an hour at rotation. Imagine if you were driving your car and one of your tires shredded. It's pretty violent at 60 miles an hour. Imagine at 200 miles an hour. And you're talking about, this was which tire? Number two? On the front. Yeah, so it was yeah. the front right tire, most likely. Yes. I think it's one, two. It so is. It's a front right tire that shredded. The left one's still holding, but then you've got a massive imbalance, and it's right under the cockpit. I mean, that whole thing's going to shake so violently. So violently. And then once the nose lifted and they no longer had drag on it, it could vibrate even more. Yeah. This actually is relatively common on, like, on a lot of the baby buses, when the tires are even marginally unbalanced. When you lift, if you're sitting at the front of the airplane, you can feel it go, as it vibrates. As and as the gear down. retracts. Yeah, as the gear retracts and the wheels slow down. 
After V1, the elevator began to rise at 166.7 knots, indicating that they rotated. But then at 175.07 knots, the elevator moved back and is considered the time when the captain rejected takeoff. When interviewed, the captain said that after VR was reached, the magnitude of the vibration was so great that he believed the airplane would be uncontrollable and decided to reject takeoff. Now, we all know that V1 is the decision speed. If there's a failure after V1, the crew should still take off unless the circumstances are extreme enough because you will probably overrun the runway if you abort now. And the crew knew this in regards to engine failures, but was not trained to know, quote, the possible impairment the stop distance might suffer when failure is due to other factors, end quote, and had, and had been trained to abort takeoff after V1 if the failure would prevent the plane from flying, which in this circumstance, investigators acknowledge he had every right to believe. I mean, yeah. He was perfectly reasonable in aborting takeoff, given what he knew. Per well, his training and what he understood. Well, so my next question is, and this is a hypothetical because obviously this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But if they had continued flight normally and retracted the gear, mm-hmm. what would have happened when they got to JFK and the gear came down and the tire was gone? Probably just a lot more vibration. Maybe the chance that they would have burst the other tire, but... But they had no way of knowing that that's what was wrong. Yeah. Well, I know. know. I was... It's hypothetically, right? Because they didn't know. More what they would probably have had to do is fly around a control tower. Oh, with well, their th- with their gear down, I guess. More yeah. than likely, if they had lifted off, felt the vibration go away once they retracted the gear, they would have known they would have had a gear problem, and then they would have probably just returned oh. to Malaga. Yeah. Again, speculation. Hard to say. In some cases, though, flights do opt to fly out their entire yeah, route. It's happened. Most likely, though, that happens in the event where they know they have a maintenance operation. Yeah. Base, yeah, a maintenance base. If Especially like if they're continuing on, they're like, okay, it's, it's a wheel problem, it's a tire problem. We can tell ATC and just tell them to expect us when we get there. And expect that we're going to mess up their runway. This anomaly was totally new to the crew, so he had no way of knowing what caused it. He tried rotating, since he knew how crucial V1 was, but the vibration got way worse, and the position the pilot's seat was in relative to the nose gear led to him believing that the vibration came from the rear, maybe the tail. This was further supported when he didn't feel the vibration on the pedals, as you normally would with a wheel problem, but he felt it on the controls, which would lead you to assume a control surface problem. Mm -hmm. His instrument panel did not reflect anything of concern. This, coupled with the reluctance to abort after takeoff after VR, led to a longer decision time, precious time that equated to precious runway. But across the board, investigators felt that the captain was justified in his decision that he made with the information available. I mean, it's a good point there. If his pedals weren't vibrating, but everything else was, then yeah, he probably thought it was an actual control problem with the control surfaces of the airplane, not the wheels. Which, probably the reason for that is any sort of um, vibration above the landing gear that leads to any of the control surfaces, the hydraulics, Mm -hmm. any cables, any wires, might lead the control surfaces to vibrate all on their own too. That's true. So, there's that. Now, are they the three that passed away, that perished? No. No. They were... He was interviewed. Oh, okay. Oh, you're right. You said that. I'm pretty sure it was flight crew from the rear of the airplane. Oh, I guess that would make sense. The next parts of the accident sequence were actually, in a way, caused by standard operating procedure. During the takeoff roll, it was procedure to have the pilot flying fly with one hand on the controls and one on the throttle, until V1, so that if any failure were to occur, they could immediately reduce the throttles and minimize any hesitance or human delay. Once V1 is passed, and there was a commitment to takeoff, the pilot flying would remove his hand from the throttles and transfer to the control column, both hands on the control column, avoiding any possibility of inadvertently reducing power at the crucial stages of rotation and climb. That's all good and well, but in this instance, that transfer to the control column did slow down the captain ever so slightly from shutting down the engines. And because he had to do so so quickly, his hand slipped off the number three throttle when trying to turn on the reversers or pull back to the reversers. So now there was a power asymmetry and the plane turned to the left. Mm -hmm. And the spoilers did not deploy because the reverse cycle wasn't complete since all engines weren't on reverse, further delaying deceleration. Now, as for the evacuation, Miranda rage warning applies in three, two, one. 
Evacuation in cabins one and two were delayed by passengers collecting the quote-unquote great deal of hand luggage before leaving the plane. Really, guys? Really? Really? Yep. <sighs> Keep your shit on the aircraft. You are more important I get it. than you your f***ing shit. I get it. You would have lost everything in the fire. Except yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> Didn't matter. They all lived in cabins one and two. Yep, unfortunately, that is, well, it's fortunate, but it is unfortunate that they got away with that. Yes. All of the deaths were in cabin three for a couple of reasons. Fire and smoke had begun pouring into the rear of the plane above door 4R, resulting in a rapid incapacitation of the three cabin crew besides doors 4L and 4R, inhibiting those from ever being opened, along with the fact that the doors themselves were deformed by impact. Yikes. Yeah. The... I'm now transferring to the report to read things further. Doors 1L, 1R, and 2L were opened and used immediately. Though the stewardess in charge of opening 3L saw fire on the left side, she decided to open it on seeing fire was greater on the right side. This is all a quote from the report, by the way, and I'll analyze it in a second. The stewardess in charge of opening door 2R on seeing there was fire outside decided not to open it, conducting the passengers to door 2L. Later on, a passenger opened 2R, and once three or four passengers had gone out, the slide became unusable by the fire, which then began to invade the cabin. That's why you don't go out the door with the flames. Just a thought. The stewardess in charge of opening door 3R decided not to open it due to the fire outside, and believing the fire to be on the right side, conducted the passengers toward door 3L. On account of passenger statements, we know that, and they said we, which is weird, we know that the three stewardesses at the rear of the airplane tried to open doors 4L and 4R, but failed probably due to structural deformation as a result of impacts of caused by the fire. This is translated. Yes, there was some lovely translations. One of them was when the aircraft abandoned the runway. You mean overran? <laughs> it just abandoned it. It, it abandoned it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just funny. Just like abandoning a child? It's like yeah. you're abandoning the they runway? They abandoned the runway. Oh, God. The 91 passengers in the first cabin left the airplane through doors 1L, 1R, and 2L. The 122 passengers in the second cabin left the airplane through doors 2L, 3L, and a small number of passengers used 2R. 167 passengers occupied the third cabin. The 117 of them who could leave the airplane did it mainly through door 3L, which was affected by fire during almost the whole of the evacuation process and whose slide soon became unusable. This is probably how some people ended up seriously injured. Yep. The 47 passengers and three crew who died occupied cabin three. Oh, here, here's a lovely translation. The invasion of fire and smoke. <laughs> it invaded. Was the cause for the incapacitation of the victims who were trapped inside the third cabin. It's not an incorrect use of that word, but it no. is a weird way of putting it. It yes. is weird. Not incorrect, just weird. Just weird. Okay. Going back to my analysis. Further exacerbating the situation was the fact that there were screens between each of the three cabins, which usually isn't that big of an issue. It's like it's a curtain, just yeah. move it out of the way. But it kept all of the smoke in cabin three and made it so it wasn't one cohesive evacuation, but rather three separate and individual evacuations. Oh, well, that's not great. Nope. Investigators specifically said, quote, Though the aircraft evacuation certification contemplates a 50% failure of the exits, and in this case half of them could be used, this accident questions the possibility of compliance with the 90-second evacuation requirement in case the four rear doors are unserviceable, end quote. This yeah, kind how of, are the people in the back supposed to get out? Yeah, so during certification, when they say half the doors, they usually use, like, all the left doors or all the right doors. Right. But that's not a guarantee. What about all the front doors? Yeah, or all, or the, all the rear back doors. doors. Yeah. Right. Which I think this came up in uh, the British Midlands flight, too. That had the terrible evacuation. Yeah. Yes. They also only had half the doors, and also, I think, only had the four doors. Yep. But you're supposed to be able to evacuate with half the doors. Doesn't matter In which half. In 90 seconds. Yep. Doesn't matter which half. And that did not happen. Right. They don't have curtains between... They do, but most of the time, they're very, very thin. I mean, they're pretty much worthless. You can see right through them. Why they still do it is some kind of, like, mental... Supposed to be some kind of, like, a mental, psychological barrier between... <laughs> the upper class and the, the lower, lower class. class. It's yes. really uh, classist. It is a pretty classist thing, but it is pretty useless. Because it's, I mean, it leaves a gap like this, like four inches on either side of it. 
and you can see right through it. Like, it is thin as paper. It's just ridiculous. Like It's, it's useless. I, I think I remember seeing it on the 777 we took to yes. Chicago. Mm-hmm. But the we usually fly on Frontier, so, and they don't have, right. they don't do they don't have them on there. So Now, I don't know to what quality exactly these quote-unquote screens were. Again, this is a translation. So screen makes me think one thing, Yeah. but for all I know, it could have actually been a curtain. Yeah. I'm well, not sure. Like, because there's like, uh, to be fair, it's translated. That's so. what I mean. Yeah, my guess would be curtain because why would you put a screen? I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know how things were weird. on that airline in particular. But point is, it inhibited evacuation of the rear cabin. Yes. So, not good. Not good. Not good. To be perfectly honest, it was really lucky that so many people lived. It really was. And, I mean, good. Honestly, if they hadn't veered left, who knows what else they might have hit. At it, least they only sheared off the right wing. If they it, hadn't gone as far left, it might have been the fuselage that crashed into the building. It's pretty astonishing how that airplane managed to stay in one piece all the way until it stopped after hitting so many things. Yes. If you ask me, that's just how I feel about that. It was, in a weird sick sense, lucky that they veered left. Yep. So that's all I got. Okay. We going to take a big break. Then we're going to come back with the other stuff. The other stuff. <laughs> Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armor All, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armor All products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, we're back. Let's do some findings, probable cause, and recommendations. So we're going to do some findings. There's not a whole lot of either findings or recommendations, so I'm going to read them verbatim from the report. Again, it's translated. I am sorry for some of the weird things along the hey, way. Hey, that's how we got turtles <laughs> and electricity. Yes. Okay. Electricity. Electricity. <laughs> what, what, Period. Wasn't that Period. wasn't that in like the probable cause or something? I think it was in the uh, findings. Oh, was it in the remember. findings? Yeah. I just love the turtles one. I, I don't even know how that can turtles possibly end up in a formal report. How that has anything to do with windshields. Because we, I translated it. Yeah, I know, but on still. On Google Translate. How did it get there? What translation, what word are they using that is the same as turtles? <laughs> <laughs> if I understood the mechanics of Chinese, Chinese yeah. I'd tell you. Okay. But I don't. Anyways. Doesn't matter now. Just funny. I am skipping, like, the first half of the findings. Literally the first half. This was fine. And this was fine. Yeah. They're lettered, and I'm starting at G. So, they found that vibration caused by detachment of the tread of tire, of tire number two, of the front gear, (laughs) increased significantly when rotation began. So, needless to say, the vibration got a lot worse because of the detachment of the... Tread, tread the from tread the tire, from, from the, the number tire. two tire. Yeah. On the front gear. They found that detachment of the tread of the number two tire was caused by flaws in the retread process. So really, this was a maintenance problem. Yes. Yes. And, however, they did not go that, like, the deep ex- into yeah. that. Yeah. The extent yeah. that I went into it is the extent that they went into it, really. Yeah. They went more into, like, here's how every single layer failed. I'm like, I don't. So they didn't put blame on anybody specifically. And they, in fact, said at the beginning of their report, this report is a technical document showing the point of view of the Civil Aviation Accident Investigation Commission relating to the circumstances of the accident subject of the investigation, its cause and consequences. In accordance to the provisions of Annex 13 to the Convention on International Civil Aviation, a.k.a. the ICAO, and Article 13 of the decree dated so-and-so, the investigation has an exclusive technical character and not being conducted to declare or limit rights, nor personal or pecuniary liability. There's a word. How do they end up with that one? I don't know. Basically, it's not here to blame anyone. Yeah. Which they took really seriously because they didn't blame anyone. Yes. Even though actually... it was definitely somebody's fault. Well, and here's the thing with that, is I actually have a small problem with that. Because maybe, yes... It's not right to go and blame somebody, but you still have to go to, like, the place that made this retreaded tire and say, what you did wrong is this, don't do it again. Yeah. And people died. Yes. Right. Or, and, or figure out, you know, was it, 
a problem of standard operating procedure? Weren't they, were they not following procedure? Did they rush through it? Did they, you know, and if that's the case, does that employee need to get retrained? Were they trained properly? Is that a training problem? Does everybody need to get retrained? It's like a big, bigger problem up here in maintenance area, right? That you kind of need to know that just so it doesn't happen. Yes. And they didn't go that deep into it, but what we do know is that this didn't seem to be a regular problem with the DC-10 like other things. So this must not have been a recurring problem. They must have fixed this somewhere along the way. Or like the report came out and they went, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're not going to yell at you, but please don't do this again. Yeah, I mean, it could be that too. I don't know what Spanish culture was in the 1980s. I don't know. They found that the crew had no indication to identify the origin or cause of the vibration. They literally had nothing in the cockpit to tell them what was wrong. They, and I guess that's kind of the primary thing for them, is like, they didn't have something in the cockpit that was like, hey, wheel vibration, or landing gear problem, or anything like that. So they didn't know what was going wrong. They found that the captain decided to reject the takeoff at a speed over VR, when vibration highly increased, considering it was caused by some kind of failure, which would make the aircraft uncontrollable. So his belief that the aircraft would have been uncontrollable had they continued. They found that the position of the remains of the tread of the tire shows that its detachment began at or above V1, ending after VR. So, no matter what, this happened after they were supposed to have committed to fly. Yes. Which is unfortunate. Had it been a little bit sooner, they might have had a better chance. Do you know... If the reverser and the spoilers were working, would they be able to stop before the end of the runway? Still they a low did, chance. They did not make that speculation. No. Okay. They didn't. These I was days just wondering. These days they probably would have done a lot more simulating to see if that was possible. Back then they probably didn't spend the time. I'm also not but, sure how new this particular investigation body was and if they had those kinds of resources. That too. So Because this was also a committee, not a board. Well, well, but no, they were, it was, had the help of the NTSB, though. Yes, so. but, correct. So it says, this agency says it's a commission, Yeah. but it is the permanent agency, okay. just to make that clear. Okay. Anyways, all beside the point, they didn't speculate on it. We don't know, but the reality is, is once you're past V1 and VR... It's most likely that you'll Pretty overrun. low chance you're going to stop before the end of the runway. But probably a higher chance that they wouldn't have gone over the highway. Right. So they found that once the... Re- the reject of the takeoff had begun. The number three engine remained with a positive thrust. Which means it just wasn't in reverse. Right. They found that the fire began as a consequence of the impact and breakage of the right wing on colliding with the concrete structure placed on the other side of the highway. So this all speaks to that runway and safety area yeah. where they just they're I'm supposed assuming... to have a they're supposed to have a designated like fifteen hundred feet or thousand feet beyond the runway. That's supposed to be safety area where there's no public anything. This You can have exceptions to this at certain airports, especially if it was built before a certain date. Like Midway. <clears throat> like Midway. So, But Midway, they've, done, they've helped some of this by creating offset thresholds. So what that means is now there's these long thresholds and you're supposed to land beyond that and you're supposed to be able to stop before the end of your... before the threshold distance. So um, that... That is an extra stretch of concrete that's usable for takeoff on the beginning of the roll end, but not at the end. They did a really good job with DIA. I realize I'm going on a tangent, but okay. I don't really care. Um, DIA is in the middle of nowhere. Yes. <laughs> and so, literally, it's just fields and stuff yes. around the it. The runway and safety areas are great. Yeah. So There's nothing you, to hit. I think, didn't a Continental overrun? No, nah, it went off DIA? the side. It oh. went off the side. It went um, off the side of the runway. But... It, I don't think I don't know if we've had an overrun. I'm sure we have. I don't not know. at the current DIA. No, Stapleton. I think we did. Oh, okay, but it, it wouldn't matter anyway. Also, we have really long runways because we can have really long runways. But yes, um, it wouldn't matter if you overran a runway unless you were coming in probably toward the terminal. Would be my guess. But I mean, we have so much space out there. It's All like, of those. Meh. Runways are so long at DIA, it's really hard to not overrun them. Yeah, it's really hard to overrun them. Like, you really have plenty of distance to slow down. More of the concern is taking off, because we're up high, and some of those airplanes are heavy, and sometimes it's high. So they need the long runways. Anyways. I can't find anything about when this commission was established. Okay, well, no idea. 
I can't even find their website. That's perfect. They probably aren't the 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 committee that does this anymore. Don't know. That, that would be my guess. Well, when you Google like the Spanish Aviation Investigation Authority, this is still what comes up. Last finding. You found that the evacuation was rendered difficult due to invasion of smoke and fire in the rear of the airplane, and because three of the four doors in cabin number three became unusable. Arguably four of them. Yep. Because eventually the, the slide, slide for was 3L burned. Yep. Melted? Question yeah, mark? All of it. So all, of it. <laughs> all four doors basically at the rear of the cabin. Pretty much useless for most of the evacuation. Awesome. Yep. Unfortunately. So, the cause. The commission determines the cause of the accident to be the fractional detachment of the retread of the right wheel of the nose gear, originating a strong vibration which could not be identified by the captain, leading him into the belief that the aircraft would become uncontrollable in flight and thus deciding to abandon the takeoff over VR. The decision of aborting the takeoff, though not in accordance with the standard, standard operating procedures, is in this case considered reasonable. On the base of the irregular circumstances that the crew had to face, the short period of time available to take the decision, the lack of training in case of wheel failure, and the absence of takeoff procedures when failure other than that of engines occurs. So there you go. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yes. Let's do some recommendations. They recommend that pilots should be trained on failure other than that of engines, particularly failure related to problems in the landing gear occurring at speeds close to V1, as well as considering V1's philosophy when braking capability is somehow hampered. That They didn't really reevaluate V1 per se. It's pretty much still the same thing. But they did go on to teach a lot of other failures on takeoff, not just engine failure. Because there's a lot more to it just, than just engine failure. Yes, so, which obviously became a lot more evident after the 2008 Learjet crash yep. with Travis Parker. Yes. They recommend that the use of retreaded wheels should be clearly regulated, and for the most part it is, and also they just don't do it very often anymore. They just... I, that was one of my questions. Is are, Do we even still do this? Rarely. It is possible, but rarely. I mean, retreading tires is still a good way of making sure you're not just wasting every single tire, because they are really expensive to make and replace from whole, from scratch. When you're retreading them, you just need the recycled rubber, which is fine. It's great. But there's also a lot newer technology and ways of doing this that make sure that they are very strong. So it is still very much possible. Okay, I googled it. Retreading car tires is unusual in many parts of the world, but retreading a tire for an airplane is common practice. Read this go. post, which is written for curious flyers rather than the aviation industry, to learn more about the process. Wow, that was very uh, pointed. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to get too deep into it, but yeah, that's the gist of it's it. Basically, it's because they're expensive. Yep. It's not a perpetual cycle. Each tire part number is limited to a certain number of retreads. What I can tell you is that if you had to replace a 777 tire all the time, and you had to replace them with wholly new ones, they're like 30 grand. Oh, I mean, they are giant airplane tires, so... They are, and they have to do quite the job. Man, is that expensive. It doesn't matter. That would be unreasonably expensive to have to replace all the time. So retreaded tires tend to be a pretty good way of saving money, and also... Saving resources. I mean, that way you recycle the tires and you're not having to make all these tires from scratch. So just FYI, this is from Dunlop Aircraft Tires. Sure. .co.uk. Sure. The retread process is easy to understand. A worn tire is removed from an aircraft. It is sent back to a retreading firm. <laughs> okay. Sure. Often a manufacturer of airplane tires, such as Dunlop. When Dunlop receives the tire for retreading, it is carefully inspected to ensure it is safe and economical to retread. The tire is scrapped if Dunlop's technicians consider there to be doubt about its airworthiness. When the tire is deemed safe to retread, the remaining tread will be removed, new tread rubber will be wound onto the casing, and the tire will be remolded. It will then undergo sherographic inspection. The, this inspection enables an operator to look inside the casing of the tire to ensure all is well prior to a final multi-point visual check and balance. Again, if there is any doubt to its airworthiness, it is scrapped. As it should be. Yep. Tire retreaders are extensively and repeatedly audited by airworthiness authorities such as the FAA, the EASA, or the airworthiness authority of a nation state. 
And that all makes sense. I mean, it needs to be regulated in some regard. And so that's kind of what they're saying here is that it needs to be clearly regulated. And it is, it sounds like. If you yeah. wish to read more, we will have that linked on our website. And note that this has nothing to do with tire wear. This has to do with retreading. The tires weren't worn. They were just freshly retreaded. These were literally brand new four days before the accident. So that has nothing to do with tire wear. No. As a matter of fact, on part of the walk around, from day one of flying... On small airplanes, you learn how to Check examine the tires. Yeah, yeah, examine a tire for wear because they have pretty clear wear marks. Um, where you have grooves in your car, there are grooves on airplane tires, and actually, the rule of thumb on an airplane tire, because they all run parallel to the direction of travel on the the tire, mm -hmm. they that if you're going to flat spot a tire or something, if you get down to the bottom of that tread mark, that that's considered a wear mark, and then it's beyond use. So those lines for the tread on those tires, if you go all the way down to the bottom of them, then they've worn too much. Otherwise, it's not like a measuring system like they do on your car tires. I guess I'm confused. So if you look at an airplane tire, they're just mm -hmm. lines? Yeah. Literally, if you wear all the way down through those lines to where it's just the tire, like it's just flat yeah. all the way across instead of having those lines, then it's worn. Beyond Got it. So it's that's, not. They're considered, I, I understand what you're saying. So it's are, not. It's not like your car tires, where no. if you stick a penny in it and like Lincoln's no. head shows up or whatever. It has nothing to do with the depth of the tread. If that tread is non-existent, yeah. Got if it. it's non-existent, because that's not tread. It has nothing to do with friction, actually, at all. It's literally just a wear mark. They're wear marks. Got it. If you don't see those and you're boarding a small plane, don't board. Yeah. Also, your pilot just shouldn't be flying. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, too. Anyways, they recommend that the possibility of installing in the cockpit an indicator to inform the pilots on the condition of the tires and control surfaces should be studied. There are some forms of this. To an extent, to yeah. To an extent, but it's still stuff that you can visually kind of check out. So I think it's more so specifically the control surfaces. Yes. They recommend that it should be regulated that constructions in the prolongation of the runway. That's a weird way of putting that. Making at the, the runway longer, yeah. At the airport should be frangible. Frangible? The heck does that mean? On a strip 60 meters wide along both sides of the prolongation of the center line. Frangible means fragile or brittle. What? I'm there's also a gap after frangible, and I don't know if there's supposed to be another part of that word or another word there. Anyways, what they're getting at here is beyond the end of a runway, it's the runway and safety area... Oh, it's nothing... literally saying EMAS. Yes. They're saying that there should be possibly EMAS there, or that they're saying 60 meters wide along both sides of the center line of the runway, beyond the end of the runway, there should be an area that there is nothing. And this point, there was a construction site within that runway and safety area, and that's why they sheared the right engine and the right wing. Yeah. So let's that. let's talk about EMAS a little bit since we haven't talked about it in a while. So EMAS is Engineered Material Arresting System. Yep. So it's this section at the end of many, many, many runways across the world where basically the runway collapses when yeah. a plane runs over it. It's a very soft form of concrete that when it encounters weight like an airplane, it just basically crumbles into yeah, a powder. Yeah, it swallows. It it'll swallow the, the landing gear. It keeps the airplane intact. It doesn't do too much damage to the landing gear. It just stops it in its But tracks. it brings the airplane to a stop. <laughs> yeah. Its most common use actually has been at Burbank in California, where it has swallowed like three airplanes. At least it's there. Yep. It most recently was last year. At least it's there. If you're ever curious if a runway has it, you can often see it on Google Maps, actually. Yeah, it's don't, got little squares. Don't we have it? No. Oh. We have no we need did. for EMAS. Wait, you, I guess that makes you sense. You literally talked about how yeah. we have zero need for it. We have, because there's a few different things. There's offset thresholds, there's runway overruns, and then there's EMAS. EMAS is very specific, and it's used at airports where they can't... Implement a... A real runway and safety area. Yeah. If the the real runway and safety area doesn't exist, then EMAS must be put there. Yeah. Okay. In our in our case at DIA, we have runway we have uh, overruns, which is fine. One that I don't know if it has it. I know we've talked about it. The one in Brazil. Mm-hmm. That where they ended up in the yeah, and it was gas bad. station twice. We haven't even talked about the second one yet. As of this picture, it does not have it. I don't think so. It's not required everywhere in the world. I know. 
Uh, Congonius, I recommend should have it. Oh, mm -hmm. you know who definitely has it? I'm an idiot. I wouldn't be so surprised that they don't, actually. Really? They have offset thresholds. Oh. So, if you see these, um, so, this is an offset threshold, so it's not email. It has it, though, right there. They might. Okay, so. But this is also a taxiway, so you don't want it to swallow an airplane when it's just taxiing over it, so I'm not sure that they do. That, looks... that is an overrun, and that might have EMAS under it. Okay, so, just so we're clear, I don't know how much of this is getting cut, but I am looking at runway 13 center of Midway. Behind 13 center. Sorry, behind runway 13 center. I'm actually looking at the end of runway 31 center. Yeah. And if you are on Google Maps and you look at the, at the very end, in the runway overrun area, which is short. Yes, doesn't need to be long. Is... Um, it's marked with yellow arrows, but if you look very closely at it, there appears to be a grid. And that looks like EMAS. Yeah, it's probably EMAS. EMAS. Because Midway has had overruns. Yes. We talked about We've it. We talked about it. Yep. Miranda's going to link so many episodes on this website. Sorry. If I can remember. Sometimes <laughs> I don't, because I don't always edit these. So. It's okay. Okay. It looks like it's at the end of 1-3 Center as well. Because the entirety of Midway is contained in a city block, which yep. is not a great idea. It's crazy. Okay. It actually looks like it's at the end of most of the center runways. That one really looks like it's there. They recommend that the certifications of airplanes with several passenger departments should consider the possibility of the evacuation having to be performed when 50% of the exits are made unusable. That's standard practice. It is standard practice, but I don't know if it's standard practice in that... Like, only the forward ones are usable, or only the rear ones are usable. These days, it has to be any half of doors. Sweet. So it doesn't matter. So this has been fixed? That's the theory, yes. Okay. It's supposed to be half of door, half of the exit doors. It does not matter which half. They recommend that loudspeakers and other articles destined for evacuation should be placed beside the seats of the assistant crew, which is they, the cabin crew. They lost the PA system. Yeah, they lost PA system. This has been recommended in like 18 different reports we've talked about. It makes sense. It does. It's a matter of where to put it, how much it costs, how much it weighs. Etc. What do they need? What do they really need to have? They recommend training of crews relating, relating to evacuation of wide-body airplanes should be modified due to the decrease of visibility of the hull of the cabin, which makes coordination difficult in critical cases so basically be able to train the cabin crew to evacuate with decreased visibility so they actually have simulators for this really yep i've been in one that's um, horrifying they have them where they you would be amazed the kind of stuff they can simulate so uh at the facility that i went to they actually have, like, a partial cabin of an airplane. Okay. Some people will act as passengers. Some people will act as the cabin crew, and yeah. they'll trade off doing these drills. And what it will do is it will actually make this enormously loud noise. It can vibrate the thing, and then it'll leave it tilted at up to 30 degrees. And it will fill the cabin full of, quote-unquote, smoke. See, the visibility is reduced. It'll put on the emergency lighting only, and then... It'll even have it so far as one side will exit into a swimming pool. Nice. These simulations can do everything these days. So cabin crew get trained pretty rigorously on these kinds of things. And now they do get trained in little or no visibility situations where they're forced to kind of figure out how to safely get passengers evacuated in the worst of situations. That makes sense. Also, part of this that helps people evacuate in low visibility situations, and we have talked about before, is the lighting on the floor. Which we noticed on our flight yesterday is now just glow-in-the-dark tape in some situations. Yep. It works. It works. It does work. They recommend that strict compliance with hand luggage rules should be demanded from the passengers and from the personnel in charge of embarkation. It is. That doesn't mean people freaking do it. Uh, yeah. It's all part of the safety things. You just they, they want us to demand that people do it. I demand that you leave your sh on the plane. Yeah, I mean, the Spirit incident recently was another example of how badly people evacuate when they're under the situation like that. How you just need to get off the plane. Forget about the stuff. For crying out freaking loud. Stuff can be replaced. You, you can't. Cannot. Please don't take your shit with you. Yeah. Like, if you had your phone in your pocket, 
Okay. That's fine. That's one but thing. But don't take a bag. Don't take your luggage out of the overhead bin. No. Leave it on the airplane and get off the airplane. Right. It's probably on fire. Probably. Finally, they recommend unnecessary low flap settings on takeoff should be avoided. The airlines should have clearly established in their flight manual the most convenient flap settings for each case. So, in this case, they're kind of hitting at the flight crew the fact that they might have selected the bare minimum for flaps to take off with. And they could have gone to a safer, higher flap setting, which allowed them to take off sooner at a lower speed. They mentioned it. They, I think they took off with like 8 degrees of flaps and should have used 15. Probably. Something like that. 18. I don't remember. I didn't touch on it. Doesn't matter much. That's... That decision did not cause the crash. Yeah. It probably wouldn't have solved much of this either. So, that's pretty much that. All right. That was Spanex? Spantax. Spantax. Flight 995. Thanks for listening, friendos. And thank you to Brendan for recommending this episode. Yes, thanks. And thanks to all our patrons, because you guys are awesome. Thanks to everybody for listening. Yep. Make sure you mention us to your friends and family this holiday season, or after this holiday season, as it were. We are recording this before the holiday season. Yes. <laughs> Note to self. Um, if you're ever talking about us on an airplane, and it so happens that flight crew overhear you, tell them about us. This happened to us yesterday. Yeah. We'll talk about that more on the post-episode. So, have a safe and healthy week, as always. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.